another COVID outbreak. We have many that are sick as well. And I just want to say this before we pray, that our church has always made a stand that if you're sick, stay home. So thank you for those of you staying home. We love you. Uh, we noticed a while back in our family that the fever and the sore throat started passing through. So those are the symptoms. And so we just want everybody to be safe. And then uh, all it took was a little bit of sickness, and everybody's talking about lockdowns again. So be, be mindful of that, and just also know that we will not be locked down in this church. Amen. And so we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And uh, we tried that before. A lot of times people don't remember, but way at the beginning, when we didn't know anything about what COVID was, uh, we did go online uh, primarily as well. And then we began to realize, oh, okay, we see what's happening here. They're, they're taking advantage of us and uh, making this out to, to more than what it actually is. And so just for those of you who have joined us over these last few years and maybe weren't there for the beginning stages, let me just be very clear with you. Uh, you can hold your own opinions and belief about this. Uh, we as a church are welcome to that. We just ask that you give everybody grace and space. And for me as a pastor, I am not anti-vaccine. I just didn't get this vaccine. I just didn't feel the need to. I caught it about two or three times. <laughs> I was part of the herd immunity, as they would say. And then I come to uh, you come to find out that all these people with uh, vaccines and boosters caught it too. So I guess we all go and get it. Uh, uh, the other thing is, is I'm not a conspiracist when it comes to how diseases affect us. So yes, politicians can use it and all of those things, but I don't think necessarily it's uh, put out against us. I don't think it's necessarily an attack against us. I just think uh, throughout seasons of human history, diseases spread. In other words, there was the bubonic plague, there was the Spanish flu, so on and so forth. And so, uh, I, you know, what was unique about this is that before COVID actually happened, I was one of those pastors that said, watch out for things coming in our midst, like diseases, like terrors, like natural disasters, because the Bible says these will increase in the end times. It's not that when we look at Hawaii, we go, God did it, you know, like in the sense like God lit a match and set things on fire or earthquakes over here. But what God said is the earth will be in turmoil before Jesus' second return. Can I hear an amen to that? And so what I believe happens, if you want to see my understanding of the end times, it's God in one sense at the beginning moving his hand of protection off of our land. So we just take for granted sunshiny days, blue skies. Uh, things don't catch on fire and burn a lot of things down, and oceans don't cross their borders, right? Like, we just take that for granted. But how does that work, you know? And, and oftentimes, the smart people will say, science, that's how it works. So I always tease, and I say, is this Sesame Street where the word science, S, you know, C, you know, is up there controlling things? No, there's, there's no thing called science that exists as a thing. Men, women, people do science, but where does that come from, the discovery of laws and nature? Well, that comes from God. And, and so now just, just think about uh, what the Bible talks about at the beginning stages of the birth pains of the end times, these earthquakes. And, and we know that earthquakes have a key part of tsunamis and those kinds of things. And then also uh, droughts and famines and fires and all this and diseases. Just think about an umbrella in the rain protecting you from the water and then just removing that umbrella. 
Now, the rain's always been there, right? The rain's always been coming down, but you had an umbrella. You didn't really notice it. And then when the umbrella was removed, what happens? Boom, now you notice it. Now, now you notice. And, and so often, even in our own lives, as a church and our extended church family has faced a lot of death in 2023. I lost one of my best friends this, this year. Uh, so one of our family members of this church is burying their father. Another one has lost their father. A, wor- a former worship leader uh, has the wake this Saturday for his son that died uh, changing a tire as a tire came from another vehicle and struck him. Like, when does that ever happen? And, and so uh, sometimes we get superstitious. And we think to ourselves, oh, you, you, you know, maybe God's punishing us and he's actively doing those things. I do believe there's an active punishment that will come upon the world at some point. But what I want us to understand is that as long as we're in this world, natural forces are at work and God decides who lives and who dies. And God decides when his hand is, is, is off someone and it's time to take them home. And that doesn't mean like that 16-year-old young man, like he was evil and, and God said, well, I'm taking my hand off off you. No, it was just, it's time to go. And, and sometimes preachers, uh, we try to say the nice things and make you want to have a good time. And I remember, you know, t- talking about this before COVID saying, I will never be one of those preachers. I will be, because we know we were starting off the new year, if you remember. And I said, I will always be a preacher that prepares you for this year. Because a lot of times we say, this is your year. And I believe that as long as we're alive, we should be believing God for greater things. Can I hear an amen? Amen. We should be believing God for better things in our marriage, better things for our children. But I also said in that January message of 2019, you can go back and look at it, I said some of you this year will bury somebody you love. Some of you are, you're not even thinking you're going to lose somebody, but you're going to lose them. Things like this will happen. Diseases will happen. Cancers, you know, and I wasn't trying to be a doom and gloom person, but I was just saying that happens. It happens. We bury our children. We bury our loved ones. Diseases come upon us. Cancer, it's not fair in that sense. When you, in in Song of uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, actually talked about this. Solomon, he said, sometimes, you know, I I look at the world and I say, look how unfair this is. Here you see the righteous poor in the wicked rich. Or you'll see the fool live a long life, but the wise die young of terrible causes, you know. And and, and it breaks our heart. And so as we uh, enter into this COVID season, and and once again, I'm saying right now, I'm not a prophet, but I don't know where it ends. We also see an election year coming up. And we know that last year around, you know, last election cycle rather, that just became crazy. I mean, uh, Christians like us, I remember, brother, you were the first one that shared, um, you know, the unjust murder of George Floyd. And, and we all just, as Christians, I, I laughed because I look at one, we were all like, that's unjust, that, that's wrong. And then within a few days, this brother's being asked to support a movement called BLM that supports lesbians and homosexuality and abortion. And when he didn't do it, before you knew it, the very one who shared the black, uh, you know, the the the, the idea of a black man being wrongfully done. You shared that. Within moments, you as a black man were defending him from white people wanting to kill him. I mean, come on, can somebody say that's crazy? I mean, that's nuts. I mean, we... (laughs) We literally had a black person standing in front of Nini's Deli when the riots were happening, defending one, going Black Lives Matter. And then white people were trying to tell us we couldn't say Black Lives Matter when a black person was saying it. We were literally saying, if you want us to say Black Lives Matter, we will chant it with you. Black Lives Matter. But what we don't believe is that homosexuality is best for anyone. We don't believe in abortion. And we don't support this organization. Can I hear an amen? Get me fired up before the sermon here. 
But that's what happens, and it's the same thing like with the, you know, COVID. Whatever this is as an influenza-like illness that passes through our, our, our culture, you know, we just have to be wise about it. Let's just pray about it. Let's figure it out. But I'm not, I'm not here to say that something worse can't come down the line because doesn't the, the, doesn't the Bible say that these things will happen in the end times and they'll get worse and worse? What, what if COVID, and, and, and God forbid, it, 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 it is, but I'm saying, but what if it does turn into something that kills 25% of the population? Like the black, you know, uh, like, like the the black plague, you know, and the Spanish flu, and all of this. What what if that happened? Are you still going to serve Jesus? I mean, what are you going to do? Oh, uh, my friends are dying because of the flu. I don't serve Jesus now. <laughs> like that changed anything? No. And, and it's the same thing. Like, well, well, what if you know we heard about this thing where this uh, racist goes and kills people, then he kills himself. Just happened, right? Let's just say now they want to burn down the whole city for that. Well, do we stop having church? Do we stop preaching the gospel? We can't do that, you know? And it's just sad to me because uh, out of those riots, out of Black Lives Matter, now there's these looting gangs that are going around everywhere. Have you guys seen those and heard about those? And it's just like, well, what did you think would happen when, when you as mayors and leaders told them you can riot and do that over George Floyd? They just got hip to the game and said, well, why don't we just do it whenever we want? We'll just run into stores, take whatever we want, run downtown, do whatever we want. I know that we just saw a few months ago, right at the beginning of summer, that they did a riot downtown just beating people, ripping them out of their cars. God have mercy. But you can understand this. I mean, you don't have to be a prophet to understand that all the devil has to do is tweak a few things and God just remove his hand for a little bit like, like God did with Job. God allowed Job to go through that. All God has to say is, well, they don't want me anyway. They don't ask for my help in the school anyway. They don't want me in their, their politicians, you know, the politics. Anyway. So God just says, I'll just remove the, the umbrella a little bit. What do you think the devil could accomplish what in the next three months right now? I mean, you don't even know, and I don't want to scare you with that, but let's just pray, amen? Let's pray for those who are sick, that they'll recover like my children did. Fever broke, 24 hours, you're good to go again. So they say you can also wait five days until the symptoms, you know, since you had your first symptom. 24 hours, fever break. How many have followed that rule for a while? 24 hours after your fever breaks, you're good. Amen. So I, you know, sometimes when people were, t- I was getting interviewed during the time of COVID and they were acting like, uh, like Christians were just oompa loompas. We were just idiots. And I was like, well, why don't we just do what we've always done? If you have symptoms, you stay home. And then when the symptoms go, and then they go away, wait about 24 hours to make sure you're good and then go back out into life. Amen. How many know that's how the world survived quite a bit of time? Amen. Father, we ask you to be with those who are sick today. We notice, Lord, that this is starting to come through our city as well. We know also in different parts of the country they're suffering. Lord, we also pray for those who are vulnerable, Lord, whether they have preconditions or are, are elderly, oh, Lord, that you'll spare them during this time. And, God, we, we take a moment, Lord, to think about the big picture of what's happening in our nation. Oh, Lord, whether it's the politicians, oh, God, or the urban violence or the corruption of our morals, oh, God, or the breaking down of our schools and the educational systems, Lord, we ask ask for your hand of protection to remain on us, O oh Lord. We ask you to guide us and to lead us and to have mercy on us, O oh God. If Abraham could intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah and you said you would spare that whole wicked city just for ten righteous, then Lord, we are more than ten here praying for Chicago.
We pray for your mercy upon this land and for your salvation. And, and, oh, Lord, those who are grieving their loved ones and have already this year, Lord, be with them, comfort them, let them know, God, that you are still good and that, God, uh, your presence is worth it all. And one day they can be with you face to face, oh, Father God. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. Open up your Bibles with me now to Matthew chapter 16. We're going through a series on the church, learning about why we do what we do here on a Sunday. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we have the notes up there for you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now notice all of those people are dead, and John the Baptist had just died, so uh, these people had to believe and reincarnation. wasn't true. wasn't a good belief, but they held it. But then Jesus asked them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And if you remember last week, we talked about how having Messiah with the son of the living God, the son of the living God is not just saying we're all sons, we're all daughters of God, we're all God's creation in that sense. Know that Messiah being called the son of the living God meant that whatever father God is, the son of God is. Can I hear an amen to that if you remember that? Okay, maybe do I have to review it again? Okay, if your father is a human, what does that make you as an offspring? Okay, if God the Father is Jesus' father, what does that make him and his nature? God. But then somebody will say back to us, but I'm a son of God, right? And aren't you a daughter of God? Well, then does that make us all gods? And the Mormon goes, yes, that's what we've been trying to tell you the whole time. Hold up here, Mormon. We love you, but you have it wrong. This is not polytheism here. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit share a unique relationship. We're called sons of God for one reason. One reason. The reason why we're called sons of God is because we're made in God's image. Angels are called sons of God for another reason, because they are used as God's stewards over the earth. You can read that as well in the book of Job, that the sons of God came around God and were doing his will upon the earth as rulers. And by the way, I believe that these uh, uh, angels who fell actually became the false gods that people worship. They're the, the, the root of deception, and they are also behind what happens with aliens and encounters of a third kind. Can I hear any if you're tracking with me, so, some of you there, as aliens are coming up. And so uh, I'm really interested in how this plays out in the end times. All I have to say, if we see a one world leader uh, arise and unify all of the religions and all of the governments, I was wrong about us being out of here before all of that happened. Let's just Stick through it and now live it for Jesus. Amen. Because those of you who don't know, our church believes that before the Antichrist arises, before this deception of alien technology and uh, this world of, of AI with humans and all of this spreading through this one world leader, before all this happens, we believe we're raptured out. So we actually believe that it's part of that rapturing that then plays into that world chaos to where the Antichrist comes and then things are revealed. Now, what, what's interesting is are those things, you know, being prepared right now. And the way we see it, right, like with the AI uh, merging together with humans and so forth, and then also the alien technology. Now, remember, what someone calls an alien, we just call another uh, being of another dimension. And then sometimes people say, well, aren't angels like ethereal, like ghosts, you know, like you're just going to, you know, run your hand through them like they're steam or something. No, the Bible says that they can come and be physical creatures. They can be among us with physical bodies. Uh, the Bible says to Christians that some Christians have entertained or 
were brought into their homes, angels unaware. So uh, some of our life group leaders, if you ever had a visitor come and they were very nice and helpful and then you never saw them again and no one got contact information, they could have been an angel just stopping by to hang out with you. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So when we, when we think about this in the big picture, the angels, they have their role. We as humans have our role. But then Jesus is given the title Son of the Living God with the role of Messiah. What does that mean? Quickly go with me to Isaiah 9-6 just to show it to you because it's very uh, important that you understand who Jesus is in the role of the church. He's not just a prophet in the church. Jesus is not just our guru. Though he is a prophet, though he is a master teacher guru, but he is more than that. He is our mighty God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called what? Wonderful counselor. What's the next words? Mighty God in the next one, everlasting Father, and then Prince of Peace. Now notice this. This is who he's called. This is what he's like. He's like his Father. He's everlasting. He's like the Holy Spirit. He's a counselor. He's like the God of the Bible. He has been there from the beginning. He's our creator. And he's also a prince. Notice that. He's a king and he's a prince. How is he a king? He's a king in how he's been exalted uh, called to rule, but he's a prince under his father's authority. And so oftentimes people think, well, if the father's God and the son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, doesn't that make three gods? And then we go, no, 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 those are three persons sharing the same nature. But then they go, well, if the father and son share the same nature, why is one called a son and the other one called a father? Doesn't that mean one is greater than the other? No, and that's where I've shared with you before. My father and I, we share the same human nature, but my father has greater authority than me. Does everybody get that? So someone having greater authority, just like a policeman has greater authority over us in society or a politician or a boss on their job, just because you have this thing called authority and you oversee what the others are doing doesn't mean you're more human than the other workers. Amen? So now going back to our passage here, notice what Jesus says in, in Matthew 16. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Messiah means God's chosen one. He's going to be the one that fulfills the prophecies that have been written about him. Remember this, Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 53, and countless others, even seen through the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 3, where the Bible prophesies to the woman that you will have an offspring, and your offspring is going to crush the serpent. But while he's crushing the serpent, the serpent's going to sting his foot. How many remember that? Let's just go to that real quick so you can see the first prophecy of the Messiah, by the way, is in the book of Genesis at the fall of mankind. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And notice what uh, he says to the woman. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity or war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So notice that the serpent who was possessed by the devil, you know, he's going to now be on his belly. And uh, serpents probably were similar to lizards, could, could have legs and do different kinds of functions like this. But now they're going to be cursed to only be on their belly, okay? And so now what the serpent is, is you know, is, is there being uh, cursed is now going to be spoken about the devil himself. Like what possessed? the serpent was the devil, and so here's now what's going to happen. I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So notice that, that what is spoken there is that when the woman's offspring is warring with the serpent's offspring, that eventually one of them is going to crush the head of the serpent, a.k.a. the devil, and when he does, the devil will strike his heel. So as the foot of the offspring is coming down, as the foot is coming
coming down. His uh, sting, his bite, his venom is coming up. Does everybody see that? Now think about that when you think about the cross. What is Jesus doing as an offspring? Remember, he's the father's son, but then he's also Mary's son, son of God and son of man. He is like God in his nature fully as being preexistent, always with the father. But then at a certain time at that virgin birth that we just read in Isaiah 9, he takes on flesh. Amen. How many happy Jesus became like one of us? And he did that to die on the cross. But notice what happens on the cross. He is defeating the devil while the devil is stinging him. How many know the cross stung Jesus? It brought pain to him. He felt real physical pain. So now go back to Matthew 16 there, please. So notice this. You're the Messiah. You're not just a mere a prophet type of Messiah. You are the son of the living God equal with the father Messiah. Have you now seen that in the scriptures? How many have seen that? Amen. Otherwise, I have to repeat myself. How many believe Jesus is the Messiah? Okay. How many believe he's the son of God, equal to God in nature? Okay, now you understand what Peter is saying. Now notice what Jesus says back to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So notice where Peter gets this information from. Peter gets this information from the Father. The Father by the Holy Spirit is teaching Peter what to say. He's the first one to get this. Now notice what happens. Please highlight verse 18 here. Notice what Jesus now says to Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter, as we learn, Petros, and upon this rock, <clears throat> excuse me, Petra, feminine, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, we spent two weeks talking about why Peter here is not the founder of what now we know as the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, the words are different. Upon Petros, I will build my Petra. You guys remember that? Now, if that word... Petros was supposed to be what Christ built his church on specifically, then why doesn't he say, you are Petros, and on Petros I will build my church? Now, some have tried to say, well, in the Aramaic, it would have been kephos, and that doesn't have a masculine or feminine um, ending. It would have been, upon you are kephos, and upon kephos I build my rock. And very true, he could have spoken that language. But when Matthew records it in inspired scripture, as our records, Matthew makes note of the difference. Does everybody see that? He makes note of the difference. Now, let's go to the Bible app and pull it up and then hit the Greek function so everybody can see this. But what's most important about this is that Peter is the first member of the church. That's what's most important. Peter is now not going to become a pope because notice what has to happen. Matthew 16, 18, please, and hit the Greek button. Thank you. Now, notice what has to happen for Peter to become a pope just right within those words right there. Number one, it has to be the same word. It's not the same word. How many have seen that? And you're going to see it right now. Matthew 16, 18, notice it right here. His name is Petras. And then upon the Petra, let's keep going, brother, so we can all see it. Thank you. Say unto you that you are what? What is his name? And Petros. There we go. Somebody saying like, you know, you're saying it like that. Okay. But we, we scholars say it like this. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I'm probably saying it. My wife would have to be a Petros, Petros, probably like that. Okay, so Petros, and then Petra. Everybody say Petra. So you see two different words there. Now, not only would it have to be the same word, but the second thing is, is that then there would have to be a succession built in here. 
that there would have to be something that's unique to Peter that doesn't count for all of the disciples. Now, some people say, well, he's given the keys of the kingdom. But if you remember, I've showed you in the next two chapters in Matthew 18, the same keys of the kingdom are given to all the disciples. Amen? Amen. It's there. And just put it up there for them, brothers, so that they can see. Put in Matthew chapter 18. And I believe it's verse 15 through 20. You can see that the keys of the kingdom are given to all the believers. Yeah, now just scroll on down to the end of this talk as he's talking to the church. And then you see right here, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Does everybody see that? Okay, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So going back to the Matthew 16 now, please. Notice here that for Peter to be the rock, the same word would have to be used, number one. Number two, you would have to see the succession. There's no succession taught here. And then number three, you would have to see Peter himself declaring that he is a certain kind of rock that the rest of the Christians are not. Amen? But you find the exact opposite in his epistle. Go to 1 Peter. Now leave up all of these tabs so we can come back. In 1 Peter, Peter is clear that Jesus is the Petra and that he, along with everybody else, are just the stones built on the Petra, the cornerstone. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. Scroll on down now here, please. Continue on down. Please keep going, keep going, keep going. Now notice this here. Keep going. Verse uh, 19, I believe. Uh, let, let's start. Uh, no, no, it's going to be further down. First Peter chapter 1. Keep going down. Oh, how about chapter 2? Let's go. Let's keep on going. There we go. Verse 4. Thank you, brothers. As you come to him, the living what? Now, who's talking here? Who's the author of this book in 1 Peter? Peter. As you come to him, the living stone. Now, notice here the stone is going to be the same word for us as it is for Jesus. It's going to be lethos. Put it in the Greek there, please, that everybody can see as well. Just go ahead and hit that Greek button for us, please. Now, notice this right here. You come to him, the living stone. Lethon, they have endings for the grammar, but it's lethos is the, is the word. You come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him. You also like living what? Stones. Lithioi, plural for lethos. Does everybody see that? Okay, so we are both stones with Jesus. Now, does Peter say anything here about his certain role as a unique stone? Absolutely not. Keep going. You as living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Oh, wow, I thought these guys were just a priest. No, we're all priests before God in this sense, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says about Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Keep going, please. Keep going. Thank you. Now to this stone, he, this, this stone is precious. Now to those who believe, rather, this stone is precious. But those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the what? Cornerstone and, keep going, the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Notice the only time the word Petra is used in the epistle of Peter is attributed to who? Jesus. Does everybody see that? Number one, it's not the same word. Petros and Petra are not the same word. Number two, there's no mention of anything special towards Peter in succession. Whatever he's given as keys, every disciple is given. Does everybody see that? And then number three, when Peter writes his disciples, he is clear with them that they are all together together being built upon Jesus, who is that Petra. 
So go back to our passage here, Matthew 16, 18, in the, um, the Greek there. Go back to it, please. What is the Petra that Christ will build his church upon? It's himself, yes, but specifically to what Peter's being congratulated for and being given the honor of being the first member of the church. It's the confession of who Jesus is. So Jesus is the rock, but it's also the confession of Jesus that is the rock. In other words, when you confess the rock, you have the rock. Can I hear an amen? Now, how many remember when I showed you that Peter, or rather Paul says, that it was the rock of Christ that followed them in the wilderness? Do you guys remember that? Go with me to 1 Corinthians. The, bo the book of 1 Corinthians will teach us that again as we put it here up for everyone to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Notice the rock is called Jesus. They all drank. Put it in the Greek there as well, please. <clears throat> they all drank from the same uh, spiritual food. Go up a little bit. 24 now. You, you, you got to go down in the past. I don't know what happened there. Oh, excuse me, verse 4. Yeah, when you change it there. There we go. Thank you. They all drink, excuse me, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Drink. And they drank from the spiritual what? And what does that say there in the Greek? Referring to Jesus, right? Is Peter ever referred to as Petra? No, he's Petros. Masculine and feminine are different there. It's a proper name for Peter, but this is a nickname for Jesus. That's why a feminine can be applied to him. But the feminine name, Petras, is never applied to Peter. Even according to Peter, it's Petra is Jesus. Did we not see that in 1 Peter? Amen? They all drink from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them. And the what? Petra, the rock, was what? Christ. Now, you might say, Pastor, you're just a fancy-dancy Protestant that's razzling and dazzling us with the Bible and Greek here, and I don't necessarily understand it, but my family is Catholic, or I was raised Catholic, and I don't know if I trust you. The early church fathers, by, by the vast majority, just interpreted it the exact way I did. It wasn't until hundreds of years later when the power of Rome was being lost that they tried to centralize it, that they went to the Scripture to find a reason for this succession. And my friends, you might say, well, then prove it. If the fathers are on your side, prove that it, wasn't, that it was really an issue. The great schism of 1054, the Orthodox from the Roman Catholics, proved my point exactly because what is their number one issue that they have with the papacy is that it wasn't there to begin with. The Orthodox say to the Pope, what? Nope. Not just Protestants, the Orthodox. Speak to them, Catholic, and have your Catholic friends read their websites. This is not my mere Protestant opinion. The papacy is a later invention put in there to seize power and control, and that is why today the schism still exists, as well as the philoquy the, and the son added to the Nicene Council. But it was the governmental structure that the Orthodox said, enough is enough. Can I hear an amen? That is why the Orthodox today are in schism, 
with the Roman Catholics. We may all see them the same. My wife's family comes from the Greek Orthodox background, and we all kind of see them as traditional. They have saints. They have priests, etc. No, they are not the same. They are in schism with each other, and this right here is the most major reason. Even beyond the, the adding of the and the son to the proceeding of the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Council, this is their number one reason. They will not submit to the Pope all of their bishops as the senior leader among them. Not only did it happen in 1054, but as I said, the early church fathers, and we'll send you the research, were clear. Now, once again, let me just say this. It's not only the Protestants doing the early church research. I have the Roman Catholic historians admitting this in their research. That's where we get it from. One of them is named Lenoy. Can I hear an amen? You are taught good things in this church. We're starting Bible college next week. Could you imagine what that's like if this is your Sunday church? Amen. It's free if you have a call in your, in your life to do that. Now, going back to Matthew 16, this is important. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter says this, he gets a name, uh, Simon says this, and he gets a name change. The name change does not mean that he becomes the successor of some certain role called a pope. No, he's now the first member of the church as the church is built upon Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. Now what I would like to do in the next few moments is talk about the gates of hell. Highlight the gates of hell here for me please. How many believe you're in a battle today against hell? How many believe right now there's a battle against good and evil? But how many know God is on the winning, uh, God has won and we're on the winning side? Okay, so then why is there still a battle? If we're more than conquerors, if Jesus has defeated death and hell in the grave, and if we're on the winning side, where, where, where's the fight then? Why is there all this trouble? Go quickly with me now to Ephesians chapter 6. Why, why is all this still going on? I mean, shouldn't we just be sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, just basking in the love of God, enjoying life? How many like beaches, by the way? Amen. How many would just like to chill there if you could, whether it's this beach over here at the lakefront or somewhere you know, else in a different country or down south in, in America? I mean, I love beaches. But think about this. Go on down to the spiritual warfare aspect, please. Thank you. Now, I want you to think about this. Why aren't we all doing it? Well, the Bible explains it like this. There is a victory that Christ has received from the Father by the death, burial, and resurrection of his salvific work. And then there is a victory that's being implemented upon the earth. Notice this. I want you to hear it again. There is a victory that has already been received, and now there is a victory that's being implemented. We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. The different ways that could be uh, used as this example would say the, la the latest one that just came up, uh, the June 19th, when the slaves got freed from Texas, where Texas was already defeated, had its butt whooped by the north. But how many know that victory needed to be implemented to those slaves that were still in bondage? Can I hear an amen? Hello, somebody. I mean, that will preach right there, right? You see, what we, what we see is oftentimes there's a victory that's won, and then there is now an implementing of that victory. Those who went to Texas and said, let these people go, they did not have to fight another battle for the victory. And if they would have, they would have kicked their butt again. But they had to take the victory and bring it to those people. They had to say to those people, your victory has been won. Now imagine in this illustration someone saying back to that person, you know, when the military went down there and was giving them their freedom. Imagine this, some slave saying back to those soldiers that were ensuring their freedom, no, I don't want to be free. Keep me right here. 
Could you imagine anybody doing that? Of course not. Of course, no one would say, keep me in this slavery. They would be rejoicing. I am free. I'm never coming back to this place again. And then maybe do some Django stuff. Amen? Anybody ever watch Django? Seek some justice and revenge. Thank you, my brother. I think we got it. Thank you. When we look at the scriptures, we see that freedom has already been given. Freedom is ours. Freedom is the world's. Freedom is in Christ right now. But guess what? Not everybody's received it. Not everybody even wants it. Some people hear, hear us preach the freedom that's in Christ, and they get angry at us and then want to stay in slavery with the devil. This is the day of freedom. This is the day of freedom. Can I hear an amen? Come on, this is the day of the Lord's favor. This is the day for people to never go back to that wicked slave master, the devil. But what's our job in the midst of this? To go proclaim it. Paul said we are ambassadors on Christ's behalf, speaking to people, be reconciled to God. So we're not going out there to win a victory as in the sense like it's our job to win the battle. No, the battle has already been won. It's our job to tell the world what Christ did for them. But notice Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice that. You've got to be strong in what God has done. Put on the full armor of God. So as you're going out there to tell the world what Christ has done, you do this with the Lord's armor. And it says our battle is not against flesh and blood, or our struggles are not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authority, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. See, those demons and devils, they know that their time is short. They know they're about ready to go to hell with the devil, and they're wanting to stand between us, but all they can do is roar. They don't have the power to devour those who have the armor of God. So anyone who would stay into that slave scenario, the punishment upon themselves would be their own fault to stay with that wicked slave master, right? But if now you were to walk past that slave master and say, Bubba, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Listen, that that Bubba slave owner might be able to yell, might be able to roar, get back here. You belong to me. But how many know that, that wouldn't stop that person leaving that day? The devil can roar. The devil can send lies to us. He could try to use people to distract us. But the Bible says that God has given us all that we need to stand in our victory. Notice this. You can put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand your ground. Are you fighting for the victory? No, you're standing in the victory. Does everybody see the difference there? You're not going to go get the victory. You're standing in the victory. That means the devil can't move you. And after you've done everything to stand, stand. Notice that. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. That's like your belt. The breastplate of righteousness in place with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. How many got some nice gospel of peace shoes on today? Sharing the love of God everywhere. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God so there's our quote-unquote battle our battle in spiritual warfare is real but it's from the place of victory I can't lose this battle does everybody get that I can't lose. You can't lose the battle against the devil. You can't lose. It's not like I wonder if I'm going to lose. You can't lose. 
It's already been won. As long as you stand in Christ, you stand in victory. The only way that you and I can ever go back to the place of defeat, to the place of being a loser, to the place of defeat in, in his power is for us to go back to the slave master, to turn back around and go, I'll work for you. I'll stay on this plantation and still be your slave. No, no, come on, man. But how many know that's what backsliding looks like? It's foolishness. When the Bible looks at the examples, that's what it talks about. It talks about a dog going back to its vomit. It talks about a pig going back to the mud. And that's how we're to look at it. Now, go back to that passage, please. The gates of hell will not prevail against us, shall not overcome it. So what does that mean? That means we are kicking down the gates of hell. That's the position of the church. So we are not supposed to be afraid of hell. We're supposed to be kicking down the gates of hell and plundering hell and populating heaven. Hallelujah. This doesn't mean that we literally go to hell and take out those who are suffering their punishment now. No, what it means is that those who are under the kingdom of hell or under the authority of hell, those who are being oppressed by hell, hallelujah, we go to them in Jesus' name and we say no devil in hell can stop us or stop you in Jesus' name who the Son sets free is free indeed. Be free, Chicago. Be free, LGBT community. Be free. Hallelujah. How many are free indeed today? Thank you, Jesus, for your freedom. Thank you, Jesus, for your freedom. Sometimes people are like, well, what about our fasting? What about our, um, you know, our techniques and all of these things? As we look at the book of Daniel, fasting can help us pray, but it doesn't give us the victory. The blood of Jesus gives us the victory. You know, our strategies, well, what about when we put this thing over here and do it this way? And Juan and I are always working on strategies to do things well, but it's not the strategy that gives us the victory. Christ has given us the victory already. We're just using the wineskins, the things of God and wisdom to bring forth that victory. So now, if this is the truth and we believe that it is, why isn't the church today triumphing over the devil? Why is the church hiding? Why is the church hiding? Please put up the article one. Would you help them in the back for the, the block club this week? I'll tell you why. Because the roaring of the devil scares most Christians today. This past week, we were written about in uh, the Block uh, Chicago uh, newspaper. And then from there, it was picked up by WBEZ, a NPR radio station. And I began to think about this as I did a live this week. You can find it on our YouTube and on our Facebook page. This is the reason why I think most pastors don't want to do it. It's because going out there and bringing the victory comes at a cost to your reputation in the world. They don't think to themselves, well, look at all the babies that we're saving. They don't think to themselves, oh, wow, look at the souls that are being changed. They think to themselves, what are my friends and neighbors going to think about me? What is the news going to write up about me? What, what is the world going to say about me? And then they step back. Because brothers and sisters, if we want to see victory and we want to see the soul set free, we've got to march ourselves right down to the very front doors of hell. Are you listening? You can't expect to plunder hell when you're in the church. You have to go outside of the church. Thank you, my brother. You have to go outside of the church to the gates of hell to kick it down to see the gospel go forth. This is our dear brother, Joe B. Let's give it up for him for standing out there at the gates of hell. 
You can look this up at, on your own time. And I appreciate this woman for reaching back out to me and clarifying some things that she wasn't able to get right. She still said some pretty nasty things, but we can live with that. But let's just pause here. This is what the gates of hell look like right now. Standing in, for, in front of an abortion clinic, not wanting to harm the people, praying for them, loving them, but being there to offer resources to the mothers. And by God's grace, through Juan and the ministers out there, we've seen over 23 babies saved. How many know that's amazing? Amen. Now, for the rest of those mothers, if they still want to march themselves right into hell, that's between them and God. But we believe those children belong to God when they get aborted anyways. Amen. But we believe God wants to use them to replenish the earth from the wickedness that's here. That's why some people say, well, just let them kill them. They all go to heaven that way. No, the Bible says that children are a blessing and they're to replenish the earth. But see, that's the gates of hell. Now, if you could go ahead and go down this article a little bit until you see my name mentioned, it'll be down just a little bit further. And there's Brother Juan. Let's give it up for Juan preaching out there every week. Amen. We're praying for this alderman because he's caused many issues with us as well. But keep on going down because I want you to see how they slander me and how they slander the church. Thank you right here. Notice this. Notice what they say about us. Uh, Jose, uh, Juan's brother, says his brother Jose was known for standing outside of Nini's Deli making anti-Black Lives Matter and homophobic con uh, comments. And notice that this is what they slander us with, that we're homophobic. We're not homophobic. We love homosexuals. We're not even afraid of the devil. Amen? Only thing we fear is God. Hallelujah. But what we do is we tell the truth about these lifestyles. Now, this is what I was thinking to myself. Why don't pastors want to stand at the gates of hell? Because it stinks at the gates of hell. It's dirty at the gates of hell. You come out from there needing a spiritual shower. How many of you, after Lollapalooza, just felt like you needed to take some time alone with Jesus and be refreshed again? I'm serious. The, the, the first thing, when we walked out there at Lollapalooza to preach the gospel, two girls walked up to me, and one said, I'll show you these if you give me something to eat. It gets quiet when I preach like that. What do you think this preacher said? This preacher said, come to church, we'll get you some food. You don't have to show me those. But that was within moments. That was within moments of being on the streets. I felt like I needed a shower after that. You stand out there, people say all kinds of evil against you. They threaten you. They do all of this against you. Why? Because they don't want you to rescue them from the gates of hell. They want to stay there. They're like that person in Texas if there ever was one, which I don't think there was, but they would be the foolish person to say, no, I want to stay here with this wicked slave master that cares not about me, only uses me, only abuses me. I'll stay here. That's what sinners are doing in the face of the gospel. But what Christians are there that will go out to the highways and byways and to rescue the people that are lost? Jesus said he would leave the 99 to go for the one. That's our example. It's not that we don't love the 99 in church today. We love the 99. Sometimes I talk to my pastor friends, and they're like, Pastor, I don't know why you always go out there and do all that evangelism when you have a church on your hands and there's enough trouble there. I say, because I have to go get the one. I'm commanded. It's not an option just to say, well, this keeps me busy enough. Or my Facebook ads bring in enough visitors or our door knocking or our signs out here. No, no I have to go to Hell's Gates. I have to go. Brothers and sisters, as we, thank you, brother. As we go back to our passage in the notes, he said the gates of hell will not overcome this church. 
And so we think about what this church has gone through. If you go to a, uh, our website, you'll see that I have a library there of all of the books by God's grace that I have written, and they're there for your benefit. And brother, would you go there as well? Let's open up a book that I wrote about the church history. How many want to learn about church history today? Amen. I can't go through all the details, and of course, anybody who listens to this and is, an, a nerd, and is a nerd like me will always say that I missed something or I misinterpreted, but give me some grace because I have about five minutes to explain 2,000 years of church history. Amen? How many are glad that at least a pastor will try and attempt to do that for you? Uh, most people, like I said when we started this sermon series, don't even have a desire to learn church history. They show up at this place. They have no idea what's going on while they're here. They don't see the structure of it. And while they're here, they just think it's almost like a business. You know, this, this pastor, he's like the owner. And then these people are like the, you know, the, the managers. No, no, this is nothing like a business. There may be similarities, but there's so much uniqueness to this that we can't forget it. Now go on up to the disciples of the first disciples. Uh, so everybody just w go with him. If you go to the website, you go to the library. There you go. Go up a little bit more. One more, I think. There you go. Now hit online blog form. You can follow along with me. I'm going to show you where to see a timeline here. Like I said, I can't go through all of the details, but go to chapter 12, how the church became dark here on the side, how the church became dark, and there's going to be a timeline that I can give you. Go ahead and uh, scroll down here for me for a little bit. I think I have, yeah. Now, I can point to a lot of other things, but these are the major uh, events that began to happen. So, th so this is why I'm doing this real quick, is because the, the moment I say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, there's usually two ditches that people fall into. Uh, there's the Roman Catholic Orthodox ditch, and they go, yes, and that means exactly the way we've been doing things is the way it's always been done, and you have to do it that way, otherwise you're not a part of the real church. The problem with that is they're not doing things they've always done. They've had their splits. They've had their arguments. They've had their development of doctrine. Can I hear an amen to that? That's, even if you don't understand what I'm saying yet, just trust me when I say this. There has been a development. They didn't start, like Peter was not like what you would see today in a Roman Catholic church or an Orthodox church. How many have enough sense to understand that? Now, they admit that, but then there's a way that they get around it is they say, well, we're not only the scripture. We believe as God spoke to people and wrote down scripture, God speaks to our leaders through tradition. And then magisterium, the way they rule, is their third leg of their uh, tripod stool. And that's the way they'll explain it to you. We have the Bible, which we honor. We have the traditions that are also inspired. And then we have the magisterium, the rulings that we make. And so with those three pillars or those three legs, we stand the church upon. But there's a problem with that. Those traditions and those magisteriums are human like everybody else, and they're not divinely inspired. And they show it by their progression of error throughout the ages. In other words, they show that they can't go to the apostolic age and find their doctrines and practices. They have to point to councils that came much later. Does everybody get what I'm saying? So that's why if you ask them, show me where they prayed to Mary in the Bible, they can't show you. But they'll still pray to Mary. Why is that? Because at some point, somebody they believe was equally inspired like an author of the Bible gave them that tradition. Does everybody see that? I just need some amens from some Protestants today. So I want you to understand what they're doing. If you oversimplify and you treat them as they're ignorant, they will run circles around you if you meet an informed Roman Catholic. If you just simply say to them, I'm going to give you the Bible, they're going to say to you, where did the Bible come from? Okay? You, you'll get slapped by a Roman Catholic with your own Bible if you do not understand what I am saying to you now. 
That's why some Protestants leave Protestantism and go to Roman Catholicism because they're intrigued by this tradition, especially in a time like right now where it seems like the world is so upside down. They want to see something that has been stable, that has been proven and true. And they will overlook all of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church because they believe the Roman Catholic Church corrected them. So when you show them a a pope that committed adultery or was homosexual, they'll say something like, well, that was corrected and God can still build his church. If you show them things that were done in the Inquisition, where the Jews were persecuted, where the Christians were persecuted. They'll say, well, those were things that God has showed us is wrong, etc. I mean, they're just going to say over and over and over again, we're inspired, we make the rules, and we've done it the right way despite our mistakes. Does everybody get that? But what I want you to show them and I want you to put back onto them is show me those traditions in the apostolic age. So show me you get permission to do this. In other words, do the apostolic leaders give us permission to formalize a scripture. Yes. Yes, they do. Somebody who said, no, I'm sorry, you you believe that. But yes, the apostolic leaders gave us permission to take the scriptures they were given us and organize them. Paul talked about that. Peter talked about that. We were supposed to take their writings and organize them. The first disciples of the disciples. And so I can extend the apostolic age even until, uh, let's just um, go here to the side. Are you able to see more of what's going on? Okay, go back up then, please. I'll show you the apostolic age and what I'm talking about. Go all, all the way up to the top. Uh, go up to the timeline right here. Just so you can see what I'm talking about, a little bit more detail here. So what we're asking them is show us in the apostolic age the roots for what you're now producing as fruit. In other words, did the apostolic age, to the death of our last apostle John, right around 117 AD, then you have the disciples of the next disciples, did any of these, Clement of Rome, the Didache, Ignatius and others, Polycarp and Irenaeus come next, but did any of these, because I will include the church fathers with the, uh, the actual apostles, I'll call this the apostolic age, did any of them organize the Roman Catholic Church as we see today? No. Did any of them start praying to saints and teach it? No. You can shake your head no if you don't know the answer in this class, okay? If you just don't know, just trust me for a little bit and then see if I'm wrong, okay? And if you go back and get my book, Real Saints Don't Pray to Saints, you'll see that I talk about the references they try to give, and none of them are in this age. None of them are in the apostolic age. But then I'll deal with the ones that they give after this, and for hundreds of years, even the ones they try to make are not what they're making now. It's really not until the late 200s, the third century, that some of their doctrines begin to appear. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Now go back, please, to the other site. Thank you. Sometimes people talk about Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and, you know, uh, these different things. Don't fall for what we would call, like, atheistic arguments. Muslims will use these at times. Things didn't automatically change when Constantine came in power. The Trinity's not pagan. All of these other things, okay? So I don't have time to defend a a whole lot of ditches now, but I just want you to hear me when I say this. When we say that the gates of hell will not uh, prevail against the church, the Roman Catholics and Orthodox will try to say, well, this means our church is the right one because we have the truth with us, and they don't. And I want you to be able to show this to them, and then they can squirm a little bit and feel uncomfortable. Can I hear an amen? Because you love them. You love them. Amen? And you have to get them to see, no, this is really not ancient. It's really something you made up in medieval times. As a matter of fact, I make the argument, and I believe many would stand with me on this. Let's go and scroll down to the 1054 uh, schism, please. I don't even believe you have the beginning of what you're going to call the, uh, the Roman Catholic, if we're just highlighting them because they're so much bigger than the 
Orthodox, you don't even have what you're going to even get close to until around this time because that's when they actually separate. And then there are some things that begin to develop, what you would now think of as a church, a cathedral. And it's all around this time, around that Middle Ages. And they call it oftentimes the Dark Ages. But uh, we don't want to always fall into that because it wasn't dark in every way. And in other words, during this time also was the seedbeds for the scientific revolution. Hospitals were starting at this time, universities. So we do not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to honor what God did through these movements while looking at where they went wrong. Can I hear an amen to that? Because in otherwise, you're throwing out the university model. That came through the, through the, the churches of Rome. That, that, that came through the church of Rome. We're, we're throwing out a lot of things here if you're just simply a Protestant that, that doesn't believe the church exists until the Reformation, which is way down here. Keep going down to around 1517, I believe. And it happened uh, 1517. I believe it happened on, yeah, 1517, the 95 Theses. So then you have a problem now. Now you're basically like, the church didn't exist till 1517. And then a Roman Catholic will take out their, 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 their history and just, you know, and be like, well, what do you think we were doing for 1,500 years? How about developing nations? How about building castles? How about making universities? How about making hospitals? How about developing the scientific method? You Protestants were Johnny come lately. Now you're trying to tell us you know what's going on. Now, understand this, that the Protestants, those protesting, didn't have it all together. They weren't perfect men, nor uh, did they claim to be. And many of them affirmed so much of what was going on. So in other words, Martin Luther wasn't trying to say, I want to start a new church and just do my own thing. He believed that the Roman Catholic Church could be reformed. He, all his first 95 theses were, were a, a call back to the original church. And so they were experts. Somebody say the word experts. They were experts in church history. When they argued, they would argue with them. You can read their writings, not only from the Bible, but from the, the leaders of the apostolic age and the church fathers. They were experts in those teachings. And so the debate became, what did Augustine teach? What did Irenaeus teach? What was Ignatius teach? That, those were their arguments. They were very qualified. So they weren't just like somebody shouting, y'all, you Roman Catholic papists going to hell. You know, that, that, that's not what they were doing. You understand? I said, do you understand? They were not ignoramuses. They were not conspiracy theorists, though many of them thought Rome was the seat of the woman who rides the beast of horror of Babylon, which we can talk about in a little bit. But that didn't mean every Roman Catholic was that. But they were saying at one point this would be a seat of power, and I still believe that. I still believe that. And even now Catholics, there's a group of Catholics rebelling against the Pope, and I've taught, taught you about that. The Seda Vaticanus, put that up for me, please. Seda Vaticanus. It means that the, the office of the Pope has been empty since Vatican II, okay? And so there's all these conspiracies within Protestantism and Roman Catholicism of, of what's going on right now. Here's what I honestly believe. I believe that the Antichrist will take power in Rome. He will reestablish the Roman Empire and rule from there with the ecumenicalism of the Roman Catholic Church uniting religions. And I believe that's already been seen by the, how the popes in the last few years have done ecumenicalism. And remember, I'm not the only one that has this on my site. There are Catholics who you will look up right now, Catholics who defy the pope. If you have to help him, Lauren, you can. That they believe that the pope's office has not even been filled in the last two generations or three generations since Vatican II because of how ecumenical it's gotten. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So what I'm praying for is that those Roman Catholics who are actually protesting the Pope now will begin to join us as Protestants. Wouldn't that be cool? Amen. Just like Jews are coming to Jesus, I want to see these deep-seated Roman Catholics come to Jesus because we've been saying that for a long time. Were you able to get it, sister?
Thank you. Now, as he's pulling this up, I want you to think about the one ditch. People say, well, that means the church has always been around. No, the other ditch is that there is no church and we all just do what we want and become Mormons and just make it up as we go along. No, we're not going to fall into that ditch. But I just want everyone to see this. A state of Vedicanti is a term for the state of the diocese while without a bishop. In the canon law of the Catholic Church, the, church, the term is used to refer to the vacancy of the bishop's or pope's authority upon his death and resignation. And right now, those who have uh, taken this position believe that it's been gone from Vatican II. Now, please, go back to the notes, and everybody say, two ditches. Say, two ditches. Say it like you don't have Rona. Two ditches. Thank you. You all up today? Come on. Two ditches. Number one, when they, when they hear, when certain people hear the gates of hell will not prevail, they go, okay, I'm going to go into this ditch. I'm a Eastern Orthodox. I'm Romanian Orthodox. I'm Roman Catholic. I'm from the Latin Rite. I'm over here. We can trace it all the way back. And it's like, no, you can't. Just go through a timeline. It's history. They tell you when they do it. In 1950, they accepted the assumption of the Virgin Mary. 1950. They'll say, oh, but we can point to it a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah, but you didn't make it a dogma, a doctrine, a, a, a thing that could be anathemized if you don't believe until 1950. If it was that important, why wasn't it there beforehand? Can I hear an amen? I mean, we were pretty clear about the Trinity quite quickly, weren't we? Weren't we pretty clear about those doctrines and church history and so forth? And so it's obvious to see the candles, the saints, the... Uh, there was an entire debate among the early church of the iconoclasts. The iconoclasts was there were Christians forbidding all images, and then there were other ones who believed in images. Well, guess one. Guess which which side won? The image side. You ever seen an Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church? But don't tell me it was always there. There were people dying for that, going, "We will not put up these images here." Can I hear an amen? Just look it up, and when you have time, it will blow your mind what's going on in church history throughout the ages. So we don't go off into this ditch and say, oh, well, we've got to have that one church, that one way of doing things, because even those can't agree between the Orthodox and the Catholics and the Orientals, by the way. Uh, because remember, the Coptics and the Ethiopians are neither Orthodox nor they're Roman Catholics. So there's at least probably 10 major schisms that all trace back to the beginning. But then on the other side, somebody say the other side. This is where most of my friends live. This is where most of the Protestants live. Well, we just have Jesus in our heart, and then we're the church, and we get to do whatever we want. No, that's not Jesus building his church. Jesus building his church is not a bunch of people just doing whatever they want, saying, I got Jesus in my heart. That is not the faith that was handed down to us through the apostles, through the apostolic age, through the church fathers, through the martyrdom, through the building of kingdoms and all of the. That's not what we just do is just have Jesus in our heart. It's a both and. The both and is we reach over here to the traditions, and I want everyone to look up at me, please, if you can. We reach over here to the traditions of the past and our brothers and sisters, and we evaluate it by the word of God, and we say we hold on to that. It's honorable to us to hold on to that. And we hold on to the freedom of the individual independent church so that it's not ruled over by a church that could become heretical and bring the whole ship down. Can I hear an amen? Let me give it an example in textual criticism, and I'll point it to the church because I love using this as, as an analogy. The difference between the Bible and the Quran when it comes to textual criticism, and what we mean by criticism is not just being critical of the Bible. We mean thinking critical and doing the right thing by the manuscripts we have, examining them. The difference between us and the Quran is that our scriptures were free to be translated by everybody and anybody, and they were passed all around the world at that time. 
That means there was never one central governing authority that had all of our manuscripts. We're still finding manuscripts today that the Roman Catholic Church didn't have at the Council of Nicaea that, you know, Dan Brown talks about in the Da Vinci Code. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, so we, they, they took all the manuscripts and they erased this and erased that and put that. That has never existed at any time. No matter how much power Rome had, no matter how much power Constantinople had, no matter how much power the different churches of the Middle Ages had, no one's ever had all of our manuscripts because we're still finding them even today while they're buried. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in modern times in the 1940s, and that's primarily the Old Testament, okay? Now listen to this. What is amazing about that? is that we have over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts just for the New Testament alone, and they do not disagree on any major doctrine. Some people have tried to do the statistical analysis, and they're getting better at it now. They're actually making a whole database where they look at it. It's like 99% the same in all the sentence structures and all that it's putting forth in its doctrine. Even Bart Ehrman and those who talk about misquoting Jesus, and I can show you a, a variant here or you know, the story of the woman in adultery, John 8, or Mark 16, ending, etc. He says, no major doctrine is changed by these variants. Me and my mentor. F.S. or Bruce Metzger agree on the message of Jesus. In other words, Metzger was his mentor as a fundamental Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian. He's an agnostic, now an atheist, and they both studied the manuscripts, and he says, I and my Christian mentor agree that the message of Jesus is clear. Nothing has been changed by those variants. So what do those multiple variants give us? The difference, they tell us that this was never a controlled text, it was a free text, and that God preserved it as it went through the ages. What happened with the Quran? Almost identical. Any written work is going to have the same thing happen. But what did they do early on? During the third Kayef, the third leader, he says, now bring in all of your manuscripts at the penalty of death if you don't. And then he picked one, burned, literally the first Quran burning was from the Muslims, burned all of the rest of the Qurans, and now said, hey everybody, here's your Quran." During that time, there were companions of Muhammad who said, that's not the right one. Mine was the right one, and they tried to kill them in the mosque. As a matter of fact, the first wars that broke out after they were killing everybody when Muhammad died was against themselves over who was the leader. And then the next one was, what was the Quran, and where was it, uh, what, how many chapters was it supposed to have, and so forth. And then now today, we have found those other Qurans that weren't burned or were still lagging behind or haven't been erased and changed, and now we see all their mistakes, and now we pointed out to them that they never even had a true one when they tried to make the, the one to be the legitimate one. They made it worse on themselves, in other words. And so when we talk to Muslims and they say, well, we only have one Quran. You have all these different Bibles. You have all these manuscripts. We go, no, we got your manuscripts now because you're not killing the scholars anymore that are able to, they still try, by the way. They just tried not too long ago to kill one of the scholars that was uh, exposing these things. But we have now found it and showed you didn't do anything uh, except try to cover it up. And now the cover-up made it worse. But now think about this when it comes to church government. Think about this. When you look at the Roman Catholic Church and you go, that's my guy, those are my people, you see all the corruption. You see all the issues. But if you believe in an independent church, like a church in the manuscripts that can go from here to there and exist without that centralized authority, no matter how much you try to put down the Roman Catholics or how much you persecute those over there or kill those over there, you still have churches like us popping up everywhere. In other words, we don't die, we multiply. 
Do you see the wisdom in that? I said, do you see the wisdom in that? That's why when you go to Revelation, go to Revelation quickly with me, chapter 2, what do you see happening in the book of Revelation chapter 2 with the seven churches? Jesus is giving a report card, is he not? Now, why doesn't he ever mention the church of Rome? Because it wasn't important at that time, number one. And then number two, why doesn't he say, well, Peter will just come and straighten you out? Or the one coming after uh, Peter, you know, Linus or Clement, they'd argue over who was the second pope too, by the way. Historian, even Roman Catholic historians argue over who the second pope was. Well, well why, do, why doesn't Jesus just say, hey, um, listen, you church, I'm going to tell you now what you need to do. Go down just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, stay up there, I'm sorry. Uh, go to, uh, you know, uh, Linus or Clement, go to the church of Ephesus and tell them what to do. No, because these were independent churches. See, the Orthodox are right. See, the Orthodox go back further than the Roman Catholics in this, in this doctrine. What do we show in Ignatius and others is that there were bishops over churches and bishops over regions, and those were accountable for what was going on. See, Timothy was over Ephesus. Does everybody remember that? Timothy's in Ephesus. Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. Just please put it up there, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the, the biblical structure. So it's not that they're all controlled by one central bishop of another region like Rome. No, every church is overseen by a bishop in that region and then the local bishops of those churches. But they're not willy-nilly doing whatever they want. No, they're working together. Can I hear an amen to that? Now notice this right here. I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there and where? Ephesus. Now go back, please, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I don't have time to go through all of this. You guys know I've preached on the seven churches here before. But let's see, verse 1, look at that. To the angel or the overseer or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, I believe those are the pastors, not a literal angel. That's another discussion. But to the messenger or the overseer of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words who him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden candlesticks. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Do you notice that this time there were people trying to be over them that were false apostles? People that tried to make claims of authority but didn't really have it. Do you notice that there? See, they were, they were rejecting false authority. You have persevered and have endured hardship in my name and have not grown weary. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love, the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from your place. Oh, well, hold on. If there was only one capital C church, the church is gone now? No, you see, the universal church was always made of local churches. He's saying, I'll wipe you all out, if Ephesus, and I'll keep going. Does everybody see that? Church of Christ over here that became lesbian and homosexual uh, affirming now is a, a, a movie theater or a, a play theater. That's what happens to you. I'm going to just take your church away, and I'm going to give it to a dance hall or whatever they become these days. Right? You all tracking with me? But does that mean now the church is gone? It, the, the church is, of course not. Churches can rise and fall in locations. Churches can rise and fall. Do you see that right there? You have forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. If not, I will come and remove the lampstand from, you, from its place. I'm going to shut off the lights. I'll turn down that church. I'll turn that church off. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's another form of false doctrine. There's false apostles trying to come in and have authority over them, and, and, and they're like reject, rejecting it, and God says, I'm with that. And then there was another group of people following this guy, Nikolai, whatever you know, he's doing. We don't know much about him. And uh, they're hating it. They're like, no, we're not going to follow you. So he's like, you, you're doing those things well, but don't forget your first love. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the what? What the Spirit says to the what? Churches. Is there just one? No, there's multiple. But are we a part of the one body of Christ? Absolutely. But churches, plural, are in that one body, just like there's many parts of a body. So anybody that says in this ditch, the gates of hell will not prevail, that means you've got to stay in this one church, the church of Rome. They're wrong. God can raise and bring down any of churches he wants, any location he wants, any leaders he wants. But he wants us all to be the righteous church, the churches of like Philadelphia, the ones that are applauded. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Um, band, would you come, please, in closing? Uh, thank you guys in the back. You've been doing great. Would you go back to our notes now, please? Gates of hell. Somebody say, gates of hell shall not prevail. Come on. Has the church been through some ups and downs, the big C church? Yeah, as smaller C churches have been risen up and torn down. But is God's people still here? Yeah. And do we have more than just I love Jesus in my heart? Do we have some structure? Do we have some organization? Do we have our authority? Absolutely. When you come to a church like this, what are we representing? The ancient church. What did they have in the ancient church? One senior leader with many leaders serving with them, known as elders and deacons. We talked about that in the first two weeks. Did they have a pope? No, they didn't have one of those. But they had elders and deacons. What else did they have with them? They had the teachings of the apostles. Did every person just privately interpret the scripture? No. They were taught from the ones who came before them. That's why when I teach you in this church, by God's grace, and we make that confession on Communion Sunday, we make no different of a confession that was made from the first disciples. We have many beliefs in this church. Don't get me wrong. The Roman Catholics have one thing in their favor, is that you can develop beliefs as you go along. I get it. We've had the Bible for 2,000 years now. How many think we should develop some of our beliefs? Like, we should learn more. I get it. But we're not making new dogmas. See, in 1950, they made a dogma to the ascension of Mary. That now if you don't believe Mary ascended to heaven, you're outside of God's church. You're anathemized. Well, where's that dogma in the scripture? Are you tracking with me? You see, what we're saying here as Protestants, what we're saying as evangelical, even Pentecostal Christians, what we're saying is, yes, we've learned more about the gifts of the Spirit. We've written more. I mean, just think about Paul. He, he writes about, you know, this much of the Bible right here, right? That's what Paul wrote. How many know my library at home about the Bible is bigger than this? But the difference between what Paul wrote and those books that I've wrote, I mean, I've wrote more than Paul, okay? The difference is Paul's inspired. Paul gave us the dogma. Paul gave us the doctrine. What I build on now is how to understand that doctrine. Do you see that? And that's why the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. Because we agree on the dogma. So when the Mormons go, yeah, we're with you guys over here. We think we should develop more doctrine. No, no, you're actually, I always tell this to Mormons, because they think they're better than the Roman Catholics. They, the same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. They always will start off by criticizing those easy targets. And then they'll try to say, well, we restore, we brought back. And I always tell them, Jehovah's Witnesses, if we didn't have the truth until the 1900s, until Tar Charles Taze Russell, then how did Jesus keep his words that the gates of hell will not prevail? Ask a Mormon, was the priesthood lost, needing to be restored? They'll tell you about the first vision of Joseph Smith. The first vision of Joseph Smith is him being given, again, the priesthood that was lost during the apostate age. They consider that the apostate age. Are you listening? 
Well, hold on. Now, how does Jesus kept at his word? Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And then once again, the Roman Catholic will say, well, if you're going to say that, Protestant, you might as well come all the way over here. No, 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 not so fast. I'm only holding to the dogma of the church, not your false traditions. Now do you see the difference? I said, now do you see the difference? I hold to the dogma of the Trinity. I hold to the dogma of the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I hold to the dogma of the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. And so, you, you guys get that? I hold to the dogma of the judgment of, of, of sinners and, and reward of saints. But what I will not do is hold to the dogma that came outside of that. Next week we'll get into the message that I had planned. This was more of the introduction. The message I have planned and I wanted to spend more time on was us doing what we were seeing in that, that, that article to get practically out into the world. But I hope now that you'll take what you've learned, share it with your Roman Catholic friends in grace to say, hey, I'm learning here. I don't have it all together. Maybe we could study together. But more importantly, instead of you know, arguing with Roman Catholics and so forth, let's go to the lost and show them that what we have been taught from the beginning is still with us. Amen? That this has been handed down through generation to generation, and that there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power when we call on His name. There's power when we pray to Him. There's power to set free all those who need deliverance today. Amen. That's what we're going to emphasize in this generation. Because it's not just a mere tradition. We, we could have, let's say, all of the writings of Plato here and now teach them accurately, right? Like be the true followers of Plato, but no, nobody gets changed. The reason why we hold on to the true teachings of the Bible and of Scripture that has been given to us through God and the ages of our fathers and our forefathers, the reason why we hold on to this is because we believe there's the power of God. There's power in his words. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That through the scriptures, we learn how to rightly divide the word to correct, rebuke, and encourage. That through the scriptures, a person will keep their ways pure. And that until Jesus comes back, we'll have our faith in him. Amen. We'll live according to this. And the gates of hell will never prevail, but we'll prevail against, the, against them. If you believe that, would you stand up with me today? Let's bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Altar workers, would you come, please? Thank you for your patience. Second service. Sorry that we're running a little late. We're going to dismiss now in prayer and worship. Those who have to go, you can uh, go to the side door after I pray and dismiss. Thank you today for coming. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to do one dismissal prayer. Lord, those who don't know you today, may I, pr I pray that they'll come to know you. If you don't know Jesus, repent of your sins. Be born again. Come and talk to someone up here. If you need help today understanding more about the church, join a Bible study or discipleship. But now I pray for all of us. Father, may we be the church you've called us to be, the church that Peter was a part of, that confessed you as Messiah and the Son of God. And may we see, O oh God, souls saved and disciples made. May we implement your kingdom everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can you bless him first service? We love you. Thank you for your patience. Stay healthy this week. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. If you need prayer, come on up. If you want to join discipleship, come on. Otherwise, thank you for coming. Come on in second service as we worship.